Father in heaven, we owe you everything. Everything that we have. Everything that we are. Everything that's been accomplished. Father, it's because of you. It's because of the love that you have for us. It's because of the grace and the mercy that you continually show us. As undeserving as we are, Lord, your, your faithfulness is beyond all measure. And so, Father, we come here this morning, our hearts humbled, our spirits grateful, that already this week you've done amazing things. But, Father, we haven't come here for yesterday's blessing. We haven't come here to experience what we've experienced previously. Lord, we've come for a double portion. We've come that your Holy Spirit would be so poured out on us, that we would be so filled with his presence, that we would only have miracles to testify of. Father, we expect nothing less. We invite your presence not only into this room, in this auditorium, but into our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There comes a point, especially if you didn't grow up reading the Bible, there comes a point where you have to stop, where you have to pause, and you have to question, what on earth am I reading? Many people, for them, if it's your first time, you get to around about Genesis chapter 6, you hear about a flood that takes over the entire world, and it, it grabs you a little bit. I didn't grow up reading the Bible, but I'd heard about the flood. However, I got past that. I got into the family of Abraham, and it's there where I began to stumble. It's there where I began to say, really? Seriously? Are you sure? Is this really what happened? And the stories in Genesis chapter 21 and 22 of Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac really did um, awaken me awaken me to, to just how serious a thing we are dealing with when we talk about worship. If you have your Bibles, please go to Genesis chapter 22. Our message this morning is on worship, Genesis chapter 22. And when you're there, just say amen. The first verse says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto Abraham, and he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and claved the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and do what? And worship, and come again to you. This is the first time in the scriptures that the word worship is used, and I want you to notice that the word worship seems to be synonymous with sacrifice. The word worship is synonymous with sacrifice. There is no worship without sacrifice. Just ask Cain. Cain decided that he would come before the Lord with an offering that had no sacrifice to go with it, and it was not accepted. But Abel's sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice was worship. And so Abraham, knowing full well what God has asked him to do, to take the life of his son, his only son as God puts it, the son whom he loves, he's about to engage in a worship experience. The scriptures teach us that there is no worship without sacrifice. But I want you to notice the faith of Abraham. He tells his two young men, stay here with the donkey, me and my son, we're going to go and worship, and then me and my son are coming back. Me and my son are going, I'm going to kill my son, and me and my son are coming back. Now I think that Abraham has a, a good enough understanding of the state of the dead that he knows how things work. He knows 
that dead is dead. But in the book of Hebrews, we're told that Abraham's faith was so great, it was to the extent that he believed that though he would have to take the life of his son, that God would restore Isaac his life in order to fulfill his promise. And so Abraham goes forth. Isaac's a little confused. Verse 9, they came to the place that God had told them, and Abraham built an altar, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. We too often read these stories as, those the, as though these were two-dimensional characters, as though these were characters that didn't have to actually go through this. Abraham had to take the life of his son. There was no guns at this time. It wasn't something that could be done from a distance. He had to get right up close. He had to treat his son the same way he's probably treated a number of lambs prior to this experience, to take a blade and to slash his son's throat. His son, his only son whom he loves. You probably know the story, verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. What had Isaac done to deserve such treatment? You tell me. What was Isaac's great sin that God required his life as a sacrifice? We're told of nothing. In fact, we're told that the motivation for such actions was because it appeared that Abraham had put Isaac, the one whom his heart had longed for for almost a century, had put him on the throne of his heart, had put him in first place. Listen to me. God isn't going to ask you just to give up the bad things. It's not just the sins. It's not just the character defects. It's not just the lust. It's not just the foul-mouthedness. It's not just these things that we already abhor to a certain degree. God is saying that regardless of what it is, listen, everything goes on the altar. Everything goes on the altar. And it's not you or me that decides what comes off. It's the Lord Himself. And it's only safe to take something off. It's only safe to allow something into your life if God has first given the green light. So what is it? What's the thing? And let's not pretend like there isn't one. Let's not pretend like we don't have at least one great struggle in our life. When you think of that one sin that so easily besets you, we all have one. We all have one that, that daily is engaging in wrestling God off His throne. What's that one? Is it money? Is it money? Is it that check that you receive at the end of the month or at the end of every two weeks? Is it the house? Is it the car? Is it the occupation? Is it the food? Is it the food? Is it the dress? Is it the fame? Is it the chiseled body? What is it? What is it? I'm going to make an appeal right now. If there's something anything in your life today that is going to hinder you from hearing the Word of God speaking to you this morning, it goes on the altar now. It goes on the altar now. What is it? What is it? Is there something? 
Whatever that thing is, today it goes. Can you say amen? Today it goes. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray especially right now that the message that you have in store for us would not be hindered, would not be blocked out, would not be pushed away because of these sins that so easily beset us, because of these darling sins as they may be called. Father, today we want victory in Jesus' name. Today, Father, we want to be freed from these shackles. Today we want to be presented with a picture of who you are that is so clear that, Father, there is nothing that we would rather hold on to. We need you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story of a father and his son. One day, the father's on his way home from work. And as he's driving back from work, he's listening to the radio. And he hears kind of echoing through that there's been some sort of accident over in eastern India. And a few people have died from this strange unknown virus. Of course, the father thinks nothing of it because we don't really, right? I mean, people die all the time. Sometimes reasons unknown. It's, it's just part of life. We've got used to it. We're desensitized enough that, that such a story isn't necessarily going to grip us immediately. And so the father goes about his day, goes to bed, wakes up in the morning, heads to work, radios back on, and he hears that just since the last night, that number has grown from three to 300 in the same region. And he thinks, huh, that's kind of interesting, but doesn't give it much more thought. On the way back again, as just before he reaches the house, as he's about to turn off the car, he hears once more breaking news that these numbers have reached up to about 30,000 people. 30,000 lives have been lost in just a single day. And now, because of the number, because of how, how great this seems, he's a little bit interested. So he goes inside, and he turns on the television. And he sits down, and he listens to the explanations that are given. There's a few people, you know, dressed outside these big buildings with white coats on, and they seem a little bit concerned, but they're not really fretting too much. They explain that a number of lives have been lost, and they might end up having to quarantine the area. The man's a little bit concerned, but hey, it's so far away that it doesn't really matter so much. Until a couple days go by. Everyone is talking about it. The regions of India and the Middle East are literally being closed down. No flights in, no flights out. And it's the only thing that the man begins to hear. It's the only thing on the news. It's the only thing in the radio. It's the only thing that people are talking about at church. It's the it subject. Every single day that goes by, it seems like the death tolls are just being multiplied over and over and over again. Everyone's talking about it. They're waiting to see what's going to happen next. And that's when you see these great leaders from different countries and different nations, and they're all appearing on the TV, and you have the leader of France saying they're closing down the borders, and the leaders of the UK saying they're not allowing any flights in or flights out, Then you have the leaders of America saying they're going to build a massive wall, and no one's... Scratch that. And no one's going to get in. No one's... We're just, we're just going to keep it. We're going to make sure that this doesn't go too far, Right? We're going to make sure that there's no way this reaches the developed world. Let's be honest, you're a little concerned. A little concerned. So you go to church one night, Wednesday night prayer meeting, because now everyone wants to go to prayer meeting. Because there's a crisis. I mean, why else would we go, right? Wednesday night prayer meeting's packed. Everyone's got some loved one that's sick in some place of the world. And it's there, of all places. In the sanctuary. 
as the old people gather together behind their, their ridiculously old radio device, listening, they hear that the first confirmed case within the United States has been found. And now everyone's going crazy. Now everyone's concerned. Now everyone's scared. It spreads from one state to the next, to the next, to the next, before it literally becomes an international epidemic. People you know now personally seem to be getting sick. And here's how it works. Here's how it works. It's the worst, it's the worst possible scenario. It seems like there are literally no symptoms for the first three days once the disease has been contracted. And then after that, only a day needs to go by before the person is literally critically ill fighting for their life. They don't last very long. couple more days and their worst fears are realized. It's likely that one in every three people in the United States has the disease. And so they go to extreme lengths. They open every hospital, every care facility, every place that they can squeeze a nurse is open. And they give instructions and the instructions are as such. An ambulance will pass down your road. When you hear the ambulance, you are to leave your house with all of the members of your household and you make your way to the nearest care facility. It's there that your blood will be drawn and sent away for testing in the hope that they will find someone who has not yet contracted the disease, in the hope that they'll be able to develop some sort of antibody to fight it off. The death tolls are through the roof already. So the day comes when you hear the ambulance go down your street. You get your spouse in one hand, child in the other, and you head down. You look outside and all you see are families weeping, broken. Everyone's lost someone by this stage. And so they get to the hospital, to the care facility. Everyone goes in. You see all of these people. Their blood is being drawn, being tested. There's no more space inside, so people are just sitting outside in the parking lots and on the sidewalks. And everyone is told the same thing. You remain in or just outside the care facility, and when your name is called, you're free to leave. And so you're there. Some people are there for days at a time. And you're in the parking lot and you're thinking to yourself, I don't remember the last time I saw a smile. I don't remember the last time I heard laughter. Just tears. Just pain. Just heartbreak. And then you hear a name. And you're like, hold on a second. What was that? And you see a white coat come running out of the hospital, shouting a name, waving a clipboard, saying the name over and over and over and over again, and you hear, and you know it's your name. What are the chances, right? So you make your way to the physician. Are you so-and-so? Yes, come inside. So you go inside. You're sitting down in the first empty room that you've seen in days. Just you, a few doctors. And they say, okay, bear with us. But we think we have something. They're like, okay. We need you to sign this. And so they hand you over the clipboard. There's a form that needs to be filled out. And so you're filling it out, putting in all the details. You're still confused, haven't got a whole lot of information. And then you look down and you see something that's just not right. You see that the blood results that came back that said that this particular person hasn't been infected is not you. It's the son. And that's when the doctors explain the most heartbreaking news. We didn't expect that the possible cure would come from a minor. In order to make sure that this goes worldwide, in order to make sure that we can save as many people as we can, We're going to need everything. 
I'm afraid it's your son or it's everyone else. What do you do? I mean, I don't want to sound insensitive, but it's a little bit of a no-brainer. He's probably going to die anyways. But can you imagine being the one that has to make that decision? Can you imagine being the one that has to sign that form? And then you look at your son, sitting there, no clue, too young to really grasp what's happening. I mean, you have to sign it, right? You just have to sign it. And so you do. Brokenhearted, yet you have to. And so they say, we can give you five minutes. What do you say? In those five minutes, what do you say? Your spouse is there in the corner, almost inconsolable. What do you say? You've got five minutes, four minutes left. What do you say? What words come out of your mouth to comfort them or to bring comfort to yourself? Do such words even exist? What do you say? Three minutes. Doctor walks in a minute early for the first time in his life and says, It's time to go. It's time to go. And so he takes your son by the hand and starts to walk down the corridor. And you're sitting there. What do you do? What can you do? Those double doors at the end swing shut. And it's done. A couple of hours later, you see that thing that you haven't seen in so long. You see smiles. You see the nurses and the doctors, and you even see some patients. You hear the rumors spreading all around. Before you, knew, before you know it, there's, there's news reporters and television cameras set up all around the place, and everyone wants to speak to someone. Only a few hours go by before it's breaking news on the television. Listen, they found a cure and they're trying to make as much of it as possible. There's celebrations all over the world, but you're in the room. You're still in the same room. Just you and your spouse. No child. No celebrations. So some suits come in. Black ties, they walk in and they say, hey, We just want to express on behalf of the government, the country, how grateful we are. We understand that this is a tough time for you, but we want to let you know that everything will be covered in regards to funeral expenses. Just choose the place, choose the venue, it's on us. So a couple days preparation goes into putting this thing together. And the thought comes, well, since, since he's died and so many have lived because of it, we'll seek out the biggest place that we can find. We'll just invite everyone to this place in the hope, in the hope that, that, that people will be there and they'll be able to celebrate the life of our young boy. So you hire out the biggest cathedral. Go to all expenses possible. And then you're there. It's the day of, the morning of. You get out of the hearse and you walk towards the back. You're about to take out that small four-foot-long coffin. You're walking up the stairs. You approach the double doors. There's a man on either side and they swing them open. And you walk in and your heart drops because the place is empty. The place is almost empty. And there's a few people scattered around, but those that are there don't even look like they want to be there in the first place. Sitting back, looking at their watch, wondering what time lunch is going to come. Only there because they were local and it was the thing that was happening that weekend. How do you think the parent feels? When they walk in and they see on everyone's face, my son literally died for you and it looks like you couldn't care less. How do you think the father feels? How do you think God himself feels when we literally reenact this story every single week? When this is our worship experience.
When we know that really and truly we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't have this chance of life. Never mind eternal life, just this one here and now. When we recognize and we know it to be a truth that Jesus Christ is the only reason why we have life. The only reason why we have a chance of more than this. But we show up and we're just dead. If we can even be bothered to show up. And those of us that do come, looks like we couldn't care less. Checking our watches to see when lunch is. Sitting back, nodding off in the hope that we'll hear something better. What's your worship like? What's your experience like? Should I tell you when for me I recognized that I just became a little bit too desensitized? I was reading through the Bible and I got through almost the entire book of Matthew. And I got to the second last chapter and I read through it as though nothing had happened. I read through Matthew chapter 27. I read through the suicide of Judas. I read through the trial that Christ went through. I went through the fact that Jesus himself, the Son of God, hung on the cross. And I read it as though nothing had happened. I read it as though it was just some, some legend, some myth, some fable. And I had to question, Dean, is this story still real for you? Does the cross of Calvary still grip you the way that it first did? Because the price hasn't changed. The value of the sacrifice, the ransom that was paid on my behalf, is just as much now than when it was then. And I know that the tendency, I know that the easy thing to do is to be really gripped the first time you hear it, but after that, just kind of be like, yeah, but I know it already. Will you tell me, if this wasn't in the Bible, but if you knew someone, someone in your family that gave up their life so that you could live, would that ever get boring? Would that ever get to the point where it just doesn't mean as much as it used to? Probably not. Probably every time that person's name comes up, every time you see a picture of them, every time someone tells you a story of them, you'll remember that the only reason that you're here is because of them. And it would hit you, and it should hit you. So do we really believe what we find in these chapters? Has the cross of Calvary, has the sacrifice of the Son of God actually changed our hearts, or has it just changed our clothes? Has it just brought us to a place where we tell ourselves that we're Christian, that we give ourselves a new term, but really and truly our heart's still the same? What do you feel when you read it? And they crucified him. And they parted his garments. The Son of God hung naked on the cross for you. They cast lots that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken. They parted my garments. And upon my vesture they cast lots. And sitting down they watched him there. I think it's the worst verse in the, in, in the whole of the Bible. Matthew 27, 36. People had got to the point where the Son of God was hanging on the cross and they sat down to watch. Oh, it sounds horrific. It sounds terrible that we could steep so low, that they could be so far gone. But is this not our current posture? Is this not our current experience where we just sit down and watch, popcorn in hand? Oh yeah, Jesus died for me. They sat down and they watched him there. They pierced his hands, they pierced his feet, pierced his side, pierced his skull. I shared with you a few days ago something from the 22nd Psalm. 
In Psalm 22, verse 1, it says these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard those words before? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are the words of David. The words of the psalmist. In Psalm 22, verse 1. This psalm, along with Psalm 18 and a few more psalms, is what we would call prophetic psalms, messianic psalms. Psalms that although the writer may be experiencing something along these lines, he is in fact pointing forward to what the Christ, what the Messiah himself, is going to go through. I wonder how closely you've read some of these psalms. I'd like to, I'd like to read a little bit closer with you. Go to Psalm chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, go to Psalm chapter 18. There's a verse, verse in Matthew 27, I believe it's verse 45, it's in Luke chapter 23 as well. And it seems like one of those strange verses that just stands out, and you can't really explain it, you've probably heard of it, it says this, and there was darkness, there was what? There was darkness over the face of the earth from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. How many of you have heard of that before? That for three hours, there was pitch darkness. Now the reason why this is, is so important is because the way that time was measured during the day for this part of the, this part of the world is that time began at 6 a.m. That was the first hour. The third hour was when they would have their morning sacrifice. That to them would be 9 a.m. So the sixth hour would be what? Would be midday. The sixth hour would be midday. Do you know where the sun is at midday? At least in this part of the world, it is directly above. It is in its hottest and its brightest position. From the sixth hour, from the time when the sun should have been its brightest, it was blacked out. It gave forth no light. Why? Why is there a three-hour period of darkness before Christ gives up the ghost? I want to read you something from probably my favorite book outside of the Bible itself. Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, Filled the Son with consternation. Listen to me. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance of the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart, listen to me, pierced his heart with such a sorrow that can never really be understood by man. And then these words, so great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. So great was his agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. The whole purpose of the crucifixion was to inflict maximum pain. People would often hang there dying for days on end. Hence why they would pass through and break their legs to quicken death. Such was the weight of guilt, sin, and iniquity that Christ had really no part bearing. Our sin, our guilt, our iniquity. Such was the weight of the actions that you and I have committed, the faithless actions that we have committed. Such was the weight of the sh on the shoulders of the Son of God that He did not feel pain. He did not feel pain. Now I want you to imagine it. Imagine someone taking your, your arm without your consent, lying it down and smashing a nail right through. And I'm going to be graphic about this one because it's graphic in here. 
They take a hammer and smash the nail through his hand. They lay out the other and do exactly the same. They place one foot over the other and use a single nail to drive through them both. And that's the only thing that keeps him hanging what was likely at least four feet off the ground. The Son of Man lifted up for all to see. Now you tell me how someone can go through that and not experience pain. In fact, let me, let's go a step further. You know what would have been required for someone that was being crucified to just breathe once? In order to, be, in order to actually be able to inhale, in order for the lungs to expand properly, to simply take one breath, the one who's being crucified would have to use the nails as leverage to pull himself up and then to inhale whilst he can and then drop straight back down. Every single time that he needed to breathe, he would have had to push down on his feet to pull up with his hands, to take in as much breath as possible so that he wouldn't have to do that again anytime soon and to exhale as slowly as he possibly could. The cross of Calvary is not a joke. The cross of Calvary is not a fable, it's not a myth. I shared yesterday with the students during lunch that before you can accept the cross as something done for you, you have to accept it as something done by you. You don't get the benefits of Calvary if you don't first take responsibility for it. He hung up there not for the Romans and not for the Jews, but for you. Not solely for them, but for you and I. Such was the weight of sin that his physical pain was hardly felt. I wish that was the worst part. Go to Psalm 18. Listen to what David says, and you tell me if you can recall reading in 1st or 2nd Samuel or anywhere in the Bible biographies that we have of David, you tell me if you've read of David having this experience. Psalm 18 and verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Did David have a time in his life where he was surrounded by enemies? Did he have to call on the Lord? In order to be saved. Yes. Then he says in verse 4. The sorrows of death compassed me. And the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. And cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him. Even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved. And were shaken because he was rough. You see this is where we take the experience of David. And we press the pause button. Because we're like hold on David. We're not told of any experience. Where when you were in trouble. You called out to God. And there was this massive earthquake that just took place. In fact when you look through the historical record it seems like nothing of the sort took place in the time of David so what's he talking about where's this great earthquake coming from he says there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it in the Hebrew flames coming out of the nostrils is the imagery that's used to express the highest form of anger What's taking place on earth that God in heaven is so angry? Could it be that maybe this experience that David is writing about is not solely his own, but pointing forward to someone else? Go to the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look at what it says now in verse 13. 
Psalm 22:13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Listen, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. But David, no one pierced your hands and your feet. He goes on to say, they part, sorry, uh, verse 17, I may tell all my bones. In other words, none of my bones are broken. They look and they stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Have we read that this afternoon? But be not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. My darling from the power of the dog. David's not writing about his experience. David's writing about the Messiah's experience. David's writing about what Jesus was going through. Or what Jesus was going to go through. That his hands and his feet would be pierced. That he would be surrounded by floods of ungodly men. That they would cast lots for his garments. Why is this important? Are we just looking in the Old Testament to find something that was clearly said in the New? Or is there something greater happening here? Listen. With amazement, angels witnessed the Savior's despairing agony. The hosts of heaven veiled their faces from the fearful sight. Now listen. Inanimate nature expressed sympathy with its insulted and dying author. The Son refused to look upon the awful scene. Its full bright rays were illuminating the earth at midday when suddenly it seemed to be blotted out. Complete darkness like a funeral pall enveloped the cross. And so the Bible says there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. There was no eclipse or natural cause for this darkness which was as deep as midnight without, without moon or stars. It was a miraculous testimony given by God that the faith of after generations might be confirmed. Look back at Psalm 18. We'll read verse 8 again. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Now watch verse 9. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was upon his feet. And he rode upon an angel and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the, wind, the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion around him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. I asked you a question earlier in the week. Do you want to know just how much God the Father loved God the Son? We have no other record of anything like this in the entirety of Scripture taking place. But it appears that the prophecies are to be believed, which I believe they are, that when Christ was hanging on the tree, when Christ was being crucified on Golgotha, that the Father could not bear to witness that scene any longer. He would not dare to allow anyone else to watch what was going on. And you can almost imagine it. As Christ is there crying in agony, I thirst, I thirst. Father, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you here with me now? You can just imagine the angels there just waiting for the Father's word. Just waiting for a command before they saw down there and just pluck their master off the cross. You can just imagine Gabriel there right at the forefront. Just say the word. Just say the word and I'll be there before anyone else can even think. I can save him. I can set him free from this and the father's holding him back saying, no, no, no. He must tread this winepress alone. He must go through this by himself. But listen to me. The father can only watch for so long. The father can only watch for so long. Listen to these words. Listen to these words. In that thick darkness... God's presence was hidden. 
He makes darkness His pavilion and conceals His glory from human eyes. God and His holy angels were beside the cross. Where were they? Beside the cross. The Father was with His Son. Listen to me. Listen to me, please. The Son of God was being murdered. And the Father decided that He was not going to remain in heaven any longer. Fire comes forth from His nostrils. And the Bible says in Psalms chapter 18, verse 8, that He bowed the heavens also. That He made darkness His pavilion. You know what's crazy about this? If God had left heaven and came straight down to earth to be with His Son, life would have ceased to exist. The glory of God would have shone forth to such a degree that any witnesses would have perished immediately. God is watching His Son, His only begotten Son, breathe His final breaths. He sees what we can't see. He sees as He bears that, that uncarryable weight. And He says, I'm not staying anymore. I'm not just going to watch, I'm going to be there. But he knows that if he's to come down, something else has to be done. Listen to me. It's on the Father's mind that whilst we are killing Jesus, that he must save us. I can't just go down and show up. I need to clothe myself in darkness. I need to veil my divinity like my son did before me. I need to cover myself in dark clouds that cannot be pierced. The Father came down to earth. The Father left His throne so He could be at Christ's side. But He clothed Himself in darkness so the people that were killing Him wouldn't have to suffer. Now you talk to me about love. You talk to me about sacrifice. And Christ didn't know. Jesus didn't know. Darkness enveloped the cross. The Father was right there. And Jesus says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Father, where are you now? Right? I need you now. Where are you now? He's right there. He can't tell him though. He can't tell him. He can't reach out and touch the face of his son. He can't dry his tears. He can't stop the bleeding. He can't wipe the filth off his face. He can't reclothe him. But he stays there. He stays there. Jesus had to go through it alone. Because for you and I, it may seem like we're going through it alone. It may seem like that, that, that there's times in your life where there's just complete and utter darkness and it seems like there's no way out and it seems like you are treading the winepress alone. But God is there. Because the Bible says in John chapter 17 verse 23, I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one, that they may know that thou hast sent me and that thou hast loved me as much as them. God the Father loves you as much as He loves Jesus. If He would leave heaven to be with Jesus, He'd leave it to be with you too. He proved it in sending His Son in the first place. His presence was not revealed. Had His glory flashed forth from the crowd, every human beholder would have been destroyed. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He, trod, he tread the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. Silence. Seemingly no answer to Jesus' prayer. But never before had love shone so bright. Never before had the picture of the character of God been seen so clearly. This wasn't an Abraham and Isaac experience. The blade was going to have to come down. The son was going to have to be sacrificed. There was no other way. If the Father in heaven would leave his throne to be with Jesus, it tells me this. There's nothing that you and I have gone through alone. 
We may have felt alone when we went through it, just as Jesus did when he was on the cross, but there's nothing. Can you hear what I'm saying? There's nothing that you've been through that God wasn't there. Oh, trust me, he would have wanted to reach out. He would have wanted to just touch you and make sure everything that was, everything that was going wrong, was, it was all going to be worked out in the end. Those dark moments. Those times of depression. Those times of loneliness. In those times of extreme guilt. When you felt hopeless. Helpless. God was there. My friends, the sacrifice of Jesus was for you. The cross was for you. It was for me. Someone actually went through it for us. Someone loves you that much. Someone loves you that much. Whilst we put the nails through his hand on the forefront of his mind was how can I save these people? How can I save them? So great was his pain that physically he was numb. And on his mind at that time is you. This is worship. This is sacrifice. So how do you respond? How do you respond when someone gives their life for you? How do you respond when someone shows you love like no one else could show you? And the thing is, the person knows you as well. That's what gets me. Yeah, people can love me. But most of those people don't even know me. That's why the love that you find within marriage goes so deep, because they actually know who you are. And yet they still choose to love. God knows even more than the spouse. God knows even more than the parent. And yet He still chooses to love. Yet He still chooses to sacrifice. Yet he'd send his son Jesus Christ again and again if it was necessary. And Jesus would go again and again if it was necessary. How do you respond to that act of worship? There's a verse in the Bible that I think we all, we've, we've relegated to being about tithes and offerings. You know what it says in the book of Acts? That it's a greater blessing to give than to receive. Listen to me. Listen to me. It's a greater blessing to give than to receive. For God so For God so loved the world that he what? No, sorry, he what? He gave his only begotten son. Listen. For God, it was a greater blessing to watch Jesus hang on the cross than to not receive you. It was a greater blessing for him that Jesus would die so that you could be in heaven than to keep his son by his side and for you to miss out on eternity. Heaven received a greater blessing. It's a greater blessing to give than to receive. So what's the response? What do you say? Do you believe the verse? Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that it's a greater blessing to give than to receive. Because if you do believe that, then the only even half adequate response to that message, to that love, is to give back. To give back. And if we were blessed with a hundred lives each, giving all of them wouldn't even come close to equating the life that He gave up. The perfect, spotless life of Jesus Christ. There's only one adequate response. And it's for us to give everything. 
And here's the knockout blow. In giving everything, you receive the greater blessing. Have you seen that to be true in your life? Have you ever given all to Jesus and see how he gives so much more of all back? I've been there, guys. I've witnessed as I thought I lost everything that meant something to me. And I received so much more in return. There's no sacrifice. There's no such thing as a sacrifice for God. It's a greater blessing for you to give your life to Christ than to keep it for yourself. And so I'm asking if there's anyone here today that says, I want to give Jesus my life. If you want to, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to give you my life today. Even if I've given, to you, even if I've given it to you a thousand times before, today I want to give you my life. If that's you, then stand to your feet. You want to commit your life to Jesus today, this morning. It's the only adequate response to this love. It's a greater blessing. Listen to me. You're, in, you're, you're literally awaiting a greater blessing. The cross was for you. I don't know how many times you'll have to read it. I don't know how many sermons you'll have to listen to, how many Bible studies you'll have to attend. I don't know. But the cross was for you. The sacrifice of God was for you. The worship that we see, that the world looks at and calls it the foolishness of the cross, we look and we see something worthwhile. We see something that has more meaning than we could possibly attach. That was for you. And so I have to ask if there's anyone here today that truly wants to give Jesus their life. You want to commit wholeheartedly to today following Christ. I'm going to ask that you come to the front. If that's you, if the Spirit is speaking to your heart, if the Spirit is saying, listen, Christ gave everything for you, you can give something back. You can start today by giving something back. It's a greater blessing. What did I say? It's a greater blessing for you to give Jesus your heart than to hold on to it. If there's anyone here, young or old, you want to recommit your life to Jesus. You want to make that first commitment or you want to recommit. You want to say, Lord, I want to give you my life today. If that's you, come to the front. Come right to the front. We've got loads of space. Stand in front of the camera. It doesn't matter. Today you want to give your life to Jesus. Come to the front. Just come to the front. Now if there's someone, someone here that's previously made that decision, but they've fallen back, they've let go of God, they've lost Him somewhere along the way, so focused on one aspect of life that they forgot about the most important thing. If you're here, and you want to make a commitment to re-give your life to the Lord. I want you to come forward as well. Come right, come right to the front. Come right to the front. Make space. Let these people come. Let them come. Come right to the front. The cross was for you. Jesus' sacrifice was for you. His life in exchange for yours. What say you? It's a greater blessing. It's a greater blessing to choose now to give. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I want those of you if, you, if today you're making a decision to give your life to Christ for the first time, or you're choosing to be rebaptized. I want you to make your way through this door, just to my right, to your left, and head upstairs to the prayer room. We're going to meet with you, and we're going to pray with you there. After we have prayer here, if you're making that choice, then head right on up. There's people there waiting already to pray for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Be bold for Jesus, amen? amen. If you're going to choose to give him your life, then go all the way. Don't hold back. Don't hold on to anything else. 
Let the Spirit fill your life. It's a greater blessing. It's a greater blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross of Calvary. We thank you for the leading of your Spirit in directing us here today. And Father, I pray if there's anything in any one of our hearts that's keeping us from accepting your love personally, that Father, you'd destroy it, that you'd take it away, that you'd give us the strength to gain victory over it through Christ. Father, we want to have a genuine experience with your Son. We want to start something today that we'll never finish. We want to start a walk with Jesus. And I pray especially for those that have made decisions to give you their life today for the first time. Or for those, Lord, that are choosing recommitment. That, Father, you would be with them in a special way. That you would hover over their lives. That you would speak to their hearts. That you would use them in mighty ways as arrows for your kingdom. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we come in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.